Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by Courtroom Sciences, a podcast for the defense bar about the intersection of science and litigation. Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast, and this is episode three of our Nuclear Verdict series, and it's going to be part two with Dr. George Speckart, who I'm going to bring here in a second. And today we're really going to focus on the impact of witness testimony on jury decision making. This is a really big factor. I don't think that gets enough attention. And we're going to focus on that today because we've seen countless times in which uh, witnesses on a on a case that maybe have a decent fact pattern, uh, the witnesses can really torpedo a case if they're not properly trained to both verbally and non-verbally do well at at both deposition and trial. So let's bring in Dr. George Speckart here for part two of this. George, are you there? Greetings, everybody. Um, I'm going to start off with the story, George, because uh, it took me roughly nine hours to get out here to California from Orlando, Florida yesterday. And this is a case in which there's a $100 million demand trial is in about 30 days and they sent me video the video depositions of these witnesses and they're absolutely atrocious so i kind of want to start there Uh, what has your experience been with witnesses that are really tanking at depth and how that impacts the trial team at trial well there's so many stories um one one that comes to mind immediately was a class action race discrimination lawsuit against one of the largest food producers in america and one of the chief executives of this food producing company said in his deposition about african americans <clears throat> that the n-word could be a term of endearment That's not and good. when you make those kinds of statements Early in the deposition, there's no escaping from them. They say, and some people say in this industry, you're handcuffed on a freight train to hell at that point and can't get off. And, you know, when people call us up and say, I need help, I've got a critical deposition coming, I think to myself, thank God, these guys know how to use us. Because yeah, when the yeah. deposition is already screwed up, it's like going to a gastroenterologist and saying, I just drank a bottle of Drano. Can you uh, help me out with this? <laughs> Yeah, one uh, one of our close friends, uh, Paul Motes, who uh, is a very active trial attorney across the country that I speak with a lot, said, uh, a bad deposition lasts forever. And <laughs> that is true. Cause I wish it weren't funny. Yeah, because uh, that deposition is going to come back to haunt you. George, you've been doing this for over 30 years. And I just kind of want to get your general impressions of – as you came up through your career, what you started to learn as far as when and how jurors were making decisions and what the role of the witness ultimately plays in that final decision by the jury. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I've got another great little story for you. It was 1983, and the jury consulting industry at that time was in its infancy. And I started at a company called Litigation Sciences in Southern California, which was uh, that company was started by two marketing professors at USC. These guys were very clever. They weren't psychologists, but they knew how to sell. 
and they came up with this adage. These are the guys that came up with the phrase that jurors make up their minds during opening statements. We've heard that forever. In fact, I've even heard they, they're making their minds up in jury selection. I mean, it, it keeps it seems like it keeps creeping forward. But I think you have the real answer here based on your science. Yeah. You know, that sent a tsunami through the whole litigation community. And people were buzzing about that concept for for months, for years, actually. And I got assigned the task of doing post-trial jury interviews, which means talking to real jurors about real cases, which we consider to be the gold standard of validity in our industry. In other words, this is where you actually get the truth. You talk to jurors about what they did. Yep. And I was talking to some jurors, and we're, part of the interview was, when did you make up your mind? And they told me we, we made up our minds while watching the witnesses. So I went back to my boss, and I said, what are we going to do? Because we're telling clients that jurors make up their minds during opening statements, and the jurors are telling me that they made up their minds while watching the witnesses. He says, well, just take that out of the report. <laughs> so he was still trying to um, you know, do CYA maneuvers at that time, but it, it wasn't long before it became very clear to us that um, the witnesses are the bank. You know, Litigators talk about when they do their opening statements, they need the witnesses to cash their checks. Well, jurors are waiting to see those checks get cashed. They, they don't believe the money's in the bank until the check clears. Yeah, that's a really good point. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you refer to as the cognitive map and how jurors really make decisions? Because I really think this is misunderstood in the industry. Um, I've had so many attorneys, uh, particularly usually after conferences, uh, after I speak or at the happy hour, they'll tell me a, a bad story about a witness and say, you know, I told them to think before they spoke. I, I told them to take their time. I told them to keep their cool. I told them to stick with the plan. And um, and they didn't do it. <laughs> and they become very frustrated. Can you kind of talk about the, the cognitive map and kind of literally sure. kind of neurocognitively? What are these what's going on in the juror brain that trial attorneys need to understand? Um, at Courtroom Sciences, we've developed this theory, essentially, which has held up remarkably well over the decades. And that is, jurors start off, they come into the courtroom, they're completely blank slate, they're highly sensitized, and the first thing they do is they look at the litigants. Not the lawyers, but the litigants. Who are these guys? And they kind of sniff them like dogs, come up with primitive assessments of likability, honesty, trustworthiness, that sort of thing. Most of that is done non-verbally, in other words, on the basis of non-verbal behavior, mannerisms, eye contact, facial expressions, vocal intonation, body language, all of that kind of stuff. And that first assessment, who are these guys? What are they like? You know, can I trust them? Do I believe in these people? That's, that's the very first thing that happens. And the second thing that happens is with the same litigants, they ask, now, what are their duties and responsibilities? What is it they should have done that they failed to do? Or what is it that they uh, did that they should not have done? And if you watch a trial, especially cross-examination, you'll see that it's a constant attempt by plaintiff to foist more and more duties and responsibilities onto the opposing side. And that's those two questions, who are these guys, what are their duties and responsibilities, 
tilt the entire playing field for the for the rest of the case and create a filter or a lens through which all the remaining evidence, issues, themes, data are construed in order to come up with a final verdict and damages decision. Let's let's talk a little bit about that lens um, because what I've seen a lot recently, and I really am dying to hear your comments on this, is a lot of plaintiff attorneys have figured that out and um, they're now videotaping most of these depositions. Can you talk a little bit about how if a plaintiff attorney deposes a defense witness, uh, makes them look terrible on videotape, and then they're able to play that videotape in opening statement, or instead of calling the witness adversely, they can just hit play on that videotape. How does that affect the lens of the juror if it's not coming across the right way? Well, that's the classic train wreck scenario that you just described and the very reason why we say when people call us up and ask for help from the deposition, we know they, they know what they're doing. Um, I worked on a case in Beaumont, Texas. It was Etsy versus Burlington Northern. This is 1989. And I don't know how this happened, but the plaintiff had these atrocious videotapes of these railroad barons. Uh, these are the old-fashioned... Uh, railroad executives who just very contemptuous of the whole litigation process. They thought they were above it. They thought it was just all a nuisance. And all of that got communicated in their demeanor. And all of this stuff was played at the very beginning of the trial. And defense never could recover from that. The, the jury awarded $334 million with treble damages, which is $1.02 billion. That's Ouch. a nuclear verdict. Yeah, that's a and nuclear verdict. And that's 1989. Yeah, and it, and it was all about the witnesses. Well, and I, I just can't stress enough. You know, <laughs> we've we've got to get to the witnesses before the depositions, or else there's really not much you can do. Please tell a story about when you did your back-to-back -back mock trials, and on day one you you played the video clips, and on day two you read in the testimony because I, I find the story fascinating and how the damages changed from day one to day two. Yeah, you know, sometimes you stumble on these these little incidents that you keep forever because they're just so incredible and you know there's so much to learn for every everybody else who hasn't heard of these things i think we have to back up all the way to um research from the 70s that shows that uh 60 to 90 percent of the impact of a message is actually nonverbal. most people most people think yeah nonverbal behavior is important you know but they don't realize how enormously important it is um, so we were doing a bad faith case. This was in Las Vegas and the claims adjusters who were on video were just awful. They were again, you know, belligerent, contemptuous, pugnacious, all of the things you don't want in a witness. And the jurors awarded $190 million. And so they all huddled afterward and said, Oh my God, we've got a train wreck coming. What are we going to do? And someone came up with the brilliant idea hey, these guys are outside of subpoena range. We can just read Q&A into the record, and they'll never, they'll never have to see these witnesses. In other words, the depositions are already in the can. What are we going to do? Um, but if they, they figured if they could read Q&A into the record, they could prevent the depositions from being shown, apparently. So we recruited another panel exactly like the first one, same arguments, same evidence, same information, same everything, except this time the testimony was all Q&A read into the record. In other words, they subtract out, subtract out 
all of the nonverbal behavior of these horrible pugnacious claims adjusters. Then the jury deliberated. This time they awarded $2 million, which means 188 out of the $190 million that was awarded in the first go-round is all attributable to the nonverbal behavior of those claims adjusters. Amazing. That's really that's awesome. that's a lot more than ninety percent. I mean, that's just about everything. That's that's really incredible, and I, I think that, yeah, I think the value of the videotape deposition. Um, I think the defense bar has finally figured it out, but I, I'm still getting the even you know today in 2020, um, probably three three out of the ten calls I get. Uh, the depths are already in the can, and it does leave you handcuffed uh, to that freight train to hell, like you were talking about, which is totally preventable. Um, unfortunately, I think some, whether it be some attorneys or some clients, they have this um, aversion to being aggressive uh, early in a case. Can you tell me maybe a little bit about some of the clients that you've worked with that have been aggressive? early in a case and what the value is of the good deposit. I mean, when you have a good, solid, effective deposition on videotape, now the tables have, have really turned, haven't they? Yeah, I had, just, just to represent the other extreme, I had a client who really knew what he was doing. He brought his deponent in and they did a mock deposition with jurors watching, which is incredible. I mean, that's just something you don't see very much, but he brought in jurors, we brought in jurors, and they did the Q&A of the deposition, and then they got feedback from the jurors on what they thought of this deponent while he was being deposed so that he could get feedback in, um, through videotape in the focus session afterward about do's and don'ts, how he could improve in his own nonverbal behavior. And, of course, he did a great job uh, because when jurors tell you what they think of you, you don't forget that. Now, you had no. talked earlier about you know, what are you going to do about a witness who you tell them this, you tell them that, and then they just go and do whatever they were going to do anyway? You have to have some impact. Um, and one of the ways to do that is to get them watching jurors talking about their own performance. That's a real ego buster. And then, of course, you're the guy who wrote about the neurocognitive reprogramming that has to occur. Well, yeah, because if that doesn't occur, um, and, and again, the purpose of this podcast um, in part two with you is really to address the issue of nuclear verdicts. And I think it's incredible how when jurors really dislike <laughs> witnesses, how the damages can really get under control. And, and you and I have a paper coming out, uh, which by the time this will be broadcast, we'll, which will probably be out uh in DRIs for the defense uh, discussing this issue, um, I think that the uh, reptile uh, theory tactics have really upped the stakes here in uh, witness testimony because these are very manipulative tactics that essentially get witnesses to look very, very bad, uh, to agree with things they should never be agreeing to. And can you maybe talk a little bit about how the reptile tactics have influenced the nuclear verdicts when it comes to witness performance? Well, you know, the reptile approach started by Ball and Keenan, uh, what, about 10 years ago now? Uh, 2009. Yeah, it's a really well done, uh, ingenious strategy that has required a lot of effort um, by informed defense trial teams to overcome and 
and undo, let's say. And, you know, people talk about these nuclear verdicts all the time, but the reptile approach has emerged pretty much in parallel with the emergence of the, with with the appearance of this nuclear verdict phenomenon and you know I doubt that it's really a, a coincidence that those two things are occurring at the same time and so this is really a battle over witness performance yep. and I think that a lot of defense trial teams w- would do well to take this very seriously because a good portion of all these nuclear verdicts uh, occur with this witness, these witness performance meltdowns, and particularly these bad depositions that are putting these defense trial teams behind the eight ball to start with. And there are ways to overcome and undo this, but you know it takes you got to roll up your sleeves and get to work. I mean, it doesn't just happen with clever concepts. Training a witness is kind of like you know teaching a five year old to ride a bike. You know they're going to fall down a couple times and they got to be helped back up and try and do it again. And uh, something I want to make clear, because uh, and I'm sure you've heard this in your career, is uh, you know from typically from defense counsel or from a client, you know, like you know, we I prepare my own witnesses. I know what I'm doing, and I'm not taking anything away from the trial attorney's efforts to prepare a witness on the facts, uh, on the documents, on the strategy. But what we're doing. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're not competing with the attorney. We're, we're teaching neurocognitive, neurobehavioral, neuroemotional skills to offset these reptile attacks. Can you talk about maybe some of your um, experiences with, and this happens to me on a weekly basis, where I, w- I walk into a witness training session, and within the first hour, the attorney's telling me, well, I, I, I tell I tell the witness everything that you tell them, blah, 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 blah. And then by the end of the day, they're walking out of the room like, wow, I, I can't believe what you just did. Can you just talk about a little bit about what we do versus and how it complements what it, we're not competing with trial counsel? Yeah. And you know what I also hear is the witnesses telling me, gosh, yep. I wish I'd got I'd had this knowledge earlier when I took mm-hmm. that other deposition. And I can't, you know, I, I can't overestimate overemphasize how often this occurs and it it seems as though when people kind of look at us from the outside they think you know we don't need that you know i can do that but once they see what we do they go boy I, i wish i had done this earlier but i think part of the reason for this is that we make the witness's job easier and when that happens everybody's job gets easier and then people just go Oh my gosh, I wish we'd done this before, you know, because yeah. what what we do is help them navigate through this jungle of pomp and 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 garbage, you know, that's being thrown at them so that they can, you know, separate what's clever and what's correct and stay on the beam. And once they have these simple set of rules that we give them, it just makes everybody's life easier. And I I I totally agree. And I, what I tell witnesses in, within the first hour, and I tell the trial counsel this, and I, I can prove this, you can prove this, especially after analyzing thousands of uh, depositions, is that there's, there's, there's four ways to screw this up, George. Cognitively, meaning the witness does not listen or think effectively, therefore they make errors in their testimony. And in this particular society, People are terrible. I don't care how smart somebody is. 
We are terrible listeners and we're terrible thinkers because of how fast society goes. And they have to be literally taught. It's a skill. Listening is a skill. It's not a piece of advice. It's not a pointer. It's a skill. Thinking is a skill. And they have to be taught that, number one. So that's the first way to screw up. The second way to screw it up is behaviorally. If you're not behaving in the right way as far as appearing professional, appearing confident, appearing calm, and the juror sees that, particularly on a videotape or even live, it's going to it's going to torpedo uh, the case. Third way to screw it up, emotionally. If the witness has, and we refer to it as amygdala hijack, that amygdala activates in the subcortical part of the brain and the witness goes fight or flight, they're going to say really, really harmful things, which is not going to be good for the case. And, and not think stra- clearly. And they're not going to think clearly. And then fourth, and this is where witness preparation, not training, witness preparation typically starts, is strategy. Is they got to stick to the themes of the case that the witness has to stick to the game plan. And so I tell the attorneys and the witness, I'm like, the only way to stick with the strategy is to be prepared cognitively, behaviorally, and emotionally. Because if you don't cover those three psychological areas, it's literally impossible to stick with the strategy, correct? Yeah. I mean, that's the whole ball game right there. Um, I, I really don't have much to add to that because I think you nailed it. It's funny because I, I, I showed up to this deposition, uh, or I'm sorry, a, a trial prep uh, last week, and I had read the transcript uh, on the airplane. And when I met with the witness, I said, okay, well, here was the question. You know, here's your, here's your terrible answer. And I go, very simply, I said, George, I go, why did you say that? Here's the question. Here's your answer, which was completely off track. I go, why in the world did you give that answer? And this witness looks back at me and he goes, I have no idea. I have no idea why you said that. And I, my response was, no, I know why you said it. <laughs> you, you, you did not hear that question completely. You did not properly uh, uh, think about that question. You never processed that question fully. And you were emotional at the time, and you went off the rails. And he looked at me, and he's like, you know what? I think you're right. And I'm like, yeah, I am right. So that's a good example of how it's really the psychology behind this that's impacting the uh, the witness's ability to really perform effectively. Um, we'd like you to know, do people, – yeah, go ahead. People bring in you know, their habitual communication patterns, mm-hmm. their normal ways of communicating and talking – they try to import that into the courtroom, and it doesn't work. Or deposit. I call it the workplace brain. You yeah. have you have your. So think about it for from forty to eighty hours a week. You are processing information and communication and communicating information a certain way, and then you bring that into a litigation atmosphere, and it literally crashes and burns because the opposing attorney knows you're going to do that, and they just eat these witnesses alive. Yeah, and you know, I think we have a society where people really have lost the art of listening. Yep. They're, they're thinking, they're multitasking, and yes, that's efficient, but it really hurts you in the courtroom. And you're absolutely right, and uh, it's a skill. It's a skill, and you're right. We're in this multitasking society, and if the witness cognitively multitasks, there's it's just impossible to perform well. I've so, heard some people in this industry say that getting the witness to actually 
answer the question that was asked <laughs> is 90% of witness training. Because that involves hearing every word of the question. And so many people fail to do that. Um, I, I like to talk about different types of witnesses that you've seen over your career, um, that I've seen over my career. I think it's pretty easy to categorize these witnesses. And I'd like to talk about kind of who these people are and how we adjust our training system to meet these people's needs. And I think the first type of witness we need to talk about is what I call the uh, Mr. or Mrs. Know-it-all uh, witness. These are typically witnesses that are executives, they're managers, they're highly successful in their careers, uh, physicians, uh, perhaps engineers, people that are have a high level of intellect and are very skilled in their jobs, and then they come into litigation. And I think a lot of them don't take testimony seriously, and they think they have it figured out. Do you want to maybe talk about your experience with those witnesses yeah, that I, they come I call in? Them, uh, I call that CEO syndrome. Um, but it also occurs with experts and engineers. Yep. They, they pretty much think that this is simple and that they understand it already, and they don't. Um, I don't, I'm not sure what's behind that, except, uh, it's part of their way of adapting to the world or their way of functioning. And it's, it, again, it's one of those things that's adaptive and helpful in the workplace, Yeah. but it doesn't serve you well, very well in the courtroom. Um, engineers, for example, they can be hyper analytical. They think if they just dissect the question and analyze it, uh, that, that everything will be okay, you know, and what that does is just create more response latency so that they look like they're being evasive. I have one in engineer once who, um, he was asked in his deposition, so did you work at this company uh, from 1999 to 2003? And he says, what do you mean by work? <laughs> you know, <it's> just, <laughs> just has to analyze everything, you know. And then the other thing, the CEO syndrome, what that really means to me in the functional environment of witness training is that the person's not teachable you know they're just not they're kind of impervious and they don't absorb what you're telling them and sometimes we have to go to what i call industrial strength witness training <laughs> getting him getting him in front of jurors and letting the jurors tell him hey man you know you look like you're hiding the ball you know you look like you don't care you look like you think you know everything and they don't like i said earlier they don't forget it when jurors tell them yeah, well, the one thing I do with those types of witnesses, particularly in a reptile case, is I I break these witnesses down, and <laughs> meaning I force them into failure. And so a lot of these witnesses that come in, they're looking at their watch, they're on their phones, and they don't think they really need to be there. They'd rather be doing something else. I say, hey, let me, how about I ask you five minutes of questions, and you just do your best. And they're like, okay. And in seven minutes, I have them admitting liability, <laughs> I have them falling on the sword, or in the opposite, I have them looking very uncomfortable, being argumentative, being evasive, and then I call time out, and I'm like, hey, you just lost the case. Yeah. And I think when they do that during a witness training session, I think that's the big wake-up call, and that's when, the, that's when that CEO syndrome uh, tends to disappear because they have figured out, wait a second, this is a different environment, I am actually highly vulnerable. I better pay attention here. And I see that light bulb go off. Even with brain surgeons, cardiac surgeons, CEOs, I've seen a lot of very smart, successful people 
essentially have that kind of oh shit moment where they go yeah. oh boy I am in big big trouble and at that very point in other words once you force that type of witness to fail they tend to wake up pretty quickly and they take a lot of notes yeah and they want to succeed and so I think you can turn that you can turn that energy around and now they can put all that effort that they put into their jobs they could put it into the witness preparation and come out really well on the other side yeah, once they sniff the uh, the odor of failure, they completely change because they don't like that. They're not used to that. Absolutely. Uh, um, another type of witness, let's go to the opposite extreme. Um, let's just call these folks um, unsophisticated, perhaps, um, blue-collar workers, uh, truck drivers, maybe the low-level nurse. These are not um, PhDs or MDs. Or CEOs. Uh, these are kind of your normal, average, basic people. These Maybe are the guys have, in the trenches, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe have average intelligence or even lower intelligence. Um, I find that they come in the opposite. They come in scared to death. Uh, they have no idea what's going on. They're not familiar with litigation. And what I do with those, I, I don't think you treat that witness the same as you treat the more advanced uh intellect witness i think you have to take baby steps you know it's my experience that a lot of these people in the trenches the blue collar folks the drivers uh they come in uh can you talk about how witnesses don't necessarily trust attorneys particularly the blue collar folks yeah you know i mean this is all new to them and they're, they're scared yeah and there's a lot of emotional baggage here and that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to have a psychologist train your witnesses because because sometimes you have to do therapy before you can even get started with actual witness training per se. And to get all those emotions out on the table, you know, the distrust, the apprehension, yeah. uh, all the fear, and deal with that up front is something that un unassisted trial teams don't normally do that well. But having a psychologist present can really make a lot of difference. And once you clear the air and get that stuff worked out, not only does a witness feel better, but they're grateful for it, and they trust you more, they trust everything more, and they become more teachable. They're actually more teachable in, in many ways. I find a lot of those folks come in worried that if they don't testify the right way, they're going to lose their jobs. Um, a lot of irrational thoughts um, but those people just they need they need some more hand holding up front and but again like you said can be very teachable if you create the right environment um, another type of witness that we we see this is very common um, I will call these people the emotional witnesses um, they come in the door either screaming or crying <laughs> it's one of the two it's either they're really really upset mad or they're really really upset uh, crying can you talk about how the role of emotion and how that impacts cognition and how a lot of these sessions, maybe for the first half a day, like you're literally doing therapy as opposed to witness prep? Yeah. The first thing that came to my mind was nurses in med-mal cases. Yeah. And, you know, uh, optimal cognitive functioning occurs at intermediate levels of arousal. Yep. In other words, when you get to those higher levels of arousal that that characterize these emotional states you were talking about, you know, screaming, crying, or just being distraught, or just very fearful, uh, 
um, at these highest levels of arousal, people don't think very clearly, don't problem solve very well. Their research shows they're better at tasks that don't require very sophisticated cognitive functioning, like laying bricks, for example. So you have to get some some level of relaxation and bring that arousal level down to an intermediate level where they can function more efficiently. And when that happens, then, of course, they do much better and feel much better. Uh, but that that's part of the trust process again, is bringing them into a state of trust yeah. where they can relax a little bit because you know as well as I do in psychological literature that that trust and credibility uh, and likability, all of those things are associated with relaxation, not these hyper levels of, of activation and being jittery and nervousness and that sort of thing. Yeah, because if the witness goes into the fight or flight response mode, they're going to say harmful things. And, and you know, the, the fight mode would be becoming argumentative, becoming defensive, and trying to tr- trying to win the case, essentially, which is pretty much impossible. And then the flight mode is either they, they give away the farm, <laughs> they give up, they play dead, or they go into the, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, let me explain. And everything that comes out of their mouth uh, turns out to be fuel for the opposing attorney to take advantage of them. And so, yeah, I think it's very important to do a, a solid emotional assessment of the witness uh, prior to, to preparation and then you know, to deal one, with those issues. One of the things that, that happens with a lot of witnesses is they think that they're supposed to win the case. And they're told they that by some to people. Yeah, and, and so let's let's talk about let's kind of sidetrack and talk about this whole issue of pivoting. There is a uh, there's two schools of thought out there, uh, the right way and the wrong way. <laughs> I think we're the right way is to um, remember the objectives of the testimony. Do not step on the landmine, right? And stick with the stick with the theme, stick with the game plan. And there's a camp out there of people that are literally today, and I speak about this all the time, you and I have written about it, is the concept of pivoting, meaning when a attorney brings up a bad fact in a case. Well, isn't it true, you know, at two o'clock, the patient's blood pressure was, you know, 200 over 100. Isn't that true, doctor? To teach a witness to say, yeah, but let me explain, and to try to win the deposition, or even worse, to try to win the case at trial, I've seen a lot of negative feedback from jurors. Can you maybe talk about how when a witness tries to win a case, kind of what the jury perceives and how that's actually a huge turnoff to the jury? Because they, I think they do appear very uh, evasive and defensive. Yeah, and it, it makes them look like they're they're afraid it makes them look like they're interjecting excuses it's the same thing that that jurors associate with a child you know who just broke a vase or something and if if he just says yeah i did it you know he's going to be much more respected than if he starts ta- you know pointing the finger at somebody else or yeah. bringing in all these kind of irrelevant circumstances that just sound like excuses you know we try to do two things um, when we train witnesses. One of them is establish these, what we call them, buoys that define a safe harbor. 
These buoys are thematic linchpin cornerstone themes that define the border of their testimony so that when they're being pulled outside of the safe harbor, they can see one of those buoys going by and saying, you know, I ain't going out here. This is where I draw the line. Um, you know, and I think that's really important. But the other thing is for them to just keep their eye on the ball and understand that they are nothing other than a clear window to the truth. They've been instructed by the court that what the attorneys say is not evidence, but what the witnesses say is evidence. So there's two different, completely, two completely different standards that the jury holds. Attorneys get to be histrionic, theatrical. They get to go over the top, and, and jurors don't mind that. They understand. That's their job. But a witness does not have that luxury. He doesn't have the luxury of cracking wise, being sarcastic, getting argumentative. In fact, I tell witnesses, don't ever get into an argument with a lawyer. That's like getting into a, a, sw a swimming contest with an otter, you know. Yeah, you're going to lose not, it. He's just not equipped, you know, to out-argue the lawyer. And all you have to do is be a clear window to the truth. You state the facts as you know them and let them be. And your counsel will come back on redirect. Yeah. And clean up what needs to be cleaned up. But don't you try to do it. Yeah, because I, I think that the pivoting thing just leads to a lot of trouble. So what we instruct witnesses to do, which, which is highly effective, embrace your conduct. Embrace, embrace the facts. Do not defend. We have experts to defend. We have trial attorneys to defend. When a witness starts to defend, they look guilty. And so when the witness is taught to embrace their conduct to embrace what the facts are jurors don't get mad do they no and you know one of the things i tell uh witnesses all the time is remember jurors want to go home yep they only want to do two things please the judge and go home you know they don't care about all of your excuses and they don't want to hear them really i mean they just want what they need to problem solve the case give the verdict a just verdict according to the judge's instructions and go home. So that means, you know, don't be don't be adding on all this stuff because jurors don't want to hear it, you know. Yeah. Just give the facts and let the lawyers win the case for you. Keep it simple. And then yep. the, the last type of witness, and these are dangerous, George, and I, I know you have a lot of experience with this, is the apathetic witness <laughs> that doesn't want to be there. I think a lot of these tend to be former employees uh, or maybe someone that's retired. They're disgruntled and they come in and, and they have to testify um, about a case uh, and about conduct. And, and, and they've been, they've been terminated a lot of the times. Uh, can you kind of talk about how you treat that witness? Cause I think that can be an atomic bomb if you yeah. don't treat that person the right way. Those are the witnesses that scare me. Yes. Because sometimes much of the time, they're they're not being forthcoming with you. Sometimes they're lying, and when a witness is is lying to the trial team, that's bad. That's that's the ultimate train wreck, because it comes out at trial when you don't want it to. Yeah, and when it comes out in front of the jury like that, you know that's that's a formula for a nuclear verdict, right? Yeah, there. and a lot of finger pointing too. A lot of finger pointing. Yeah. Sometimes I have to take those people and just go have coffee with them and try to you know, yeah. try to get them to just open up and see that 
they're better off just, you know, letting go of their fears and and uh, just be being factual and straight with everybody. That's not always successful. Sometimes there's just nothing you can do with those people. Um, yeah, particularly but, if they're except, in a get even mindset. <laughs> they want to get even. That's that's not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, those are those are situations that have to be dealt with on an individual case, case by case basis. You know, sit down and have a come to Jesus meeting with the trial team and just kind of decide the best way to handle it. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a definitely a case by case basis. Um, I think those are pretty much the categories of witnesses uh, that I see. I think probably maybe maybe a fifth category. Actually, no, there is a fifth category, which is. Um, has grown over time, it will continue to grow in this diverse society, is uh, a lot of witnesses I work with, particularly in the healthcare industry, um, are foreign-born. And so there's this cultural divide, this cultural barrier in which um, these people were born and maybe even trained to an extent in a different country. And then they're over here in our legal system. Can you talk about some of your experiences with the foreign born witness and how you have to treat them a lot differently because of their, their cultural upbringing, which is not in the United States. Well, you know, a lot of these people are not familiar with the litigation process and it all seems very strange to them. Yes. And they can't understand why, why they have to go through all this stuff you know, when they haven't done anything wrong. And so it just takes more time to explain everything. And, of course, it, it's absolutely critical to have a good interpreter that everybody trusts. Yeah, because I think there's um, a lot of fear. I think there's a lot of fear because, I mean, we're one of the very few countries on this planet that even have a jury system. So the whole concept of being in front of a jury is, is really foreign to these people. And I think, like you said, it's a lot of hand-holding and education up front. So they, they have to understand the system because if they don't understand the system, boom, you know, amygdala hijack. And I, I find that those witnesses tend to go into fight or flight a lot quicker than your average person. Yeah, you know, it has to be explained to them, look, this is Alice in Wonderland. You know, we are going into an upside-down world where things aren't what they seem to be. And there are just certain rules of the game that need to be learned in order to navigate your way through this situation. It's not too difficult, but you know, it's just something that we have to sit down and, and work out together. And you know, eventually you get there. It just takes a little more time. Yeah. Well, we have a couple of minutes left. Um, George, why don't we end by just talking about what defense counsel and uh, clients can do. Um, I think we've implied this all day. But let's say it again. I think you need to outprepare your adversary. You win by you win by outpreparing the other side, and and that's going to take time. And it's going to take time and money. It's going to take time and money. And what annoys me is when you know I have a case the demand is fifty million fifty million dollars, and they don't want to spend twenty grand to train their witnesses. To me, that's absurd. Yeah, I mean this. This is by a country mile the most cost-effective thing that we do. Yes, easy. And when I, you know, when I talk to people about doing this and they, there's resistance, sometimes I suspect it's not even really the money. But you know, yeah. people have sometimes they have resistance to bringing in a psychologist because they just think they can do it themselves. It's a control you know, issue. There's something about being a psychologist where 
kind of everybody thinks that they're a psychologist and that you know they can figure this stuff out and it's it's just not the case it's 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 kind of a elusive situation there's it, it doesn't it's not what it appears to be it's much it's much more effective much more penetrating much more um impactful than than people realize until they do it once they do it they see wow you know i should have done this earlier no i i agree well george thank you so much dr george speckart thank you so much for being on the podcast and we're going to have you back soon i think our next topic is going to be uh, another nuclear verdict podcast this one talking about the ins and outs of jury selection both in state and federal court so we'll have you back for that really soon all right thanks bill all right thanks take care well there you have it episode three is complete on nuclear verdicts episode four which is coming up interview with bob tyson author of the new nuclear verdict book and that is going to be phenomenal so that's going to be a a must-listen-to podcast. I want to thank you very much for listening. This is Dr. Bill Kanaski with Courtroom Sciences. We will see you next time. You've been listening to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by CSI. For more information, visit courtroomsciences.com.